is Sunday School for Misfits, hosted by me, Dr. Selena Stone, a podcast where we, the Misfits, explore the good, the bad, and the questionable of our church experiences and the Christian beliefs and perspectives that we were taught. Welcome and thank you for listening. Hello everyone and welcome to another episode of Sunday School for Misfits. I hope that you've had a really good week. I hope that you enjoyed the conversation last week with Stacey. I found it interesting to record and I hope that you found it useful as well. For this week, I am sharing with you a panel that I was on. I've edited it way down so that we've only got the bits of it that I think will be will be particularly interesting and helpful for you all. It was a panel about spiritual abuse and the panel was organised because over the last couple of months, stories have been emerging from a quite big evangelical church in the UK called Soul Survivor. Some of you might have heard about it and Mike Pilavachi who founded that church and numerous people have come forward with accusations about abuses of power, um, physical abuses of power, predatory behaviour with young men. And so it's brought to the forefront a lot of questions again about Christian leadership, toxic leadership, power, abuse, and all of those kinds of things. I only discovered the phrase spiritual abuse through my research. When I did, it helped me understand a lot of what I had seen and some of what I had experienced growing up in the church. And we've kind of touched on this theme a little bit, especially in the episode with Danielle last season, when we were talking about the real high expectations churches can have. And we talked about internships and the kind of cultures of honor and deference, which we can be, which we can find ourselves in when we're in the church. And I already was thinking we could have a whole series on spiritual abuse and what healthy culture looks like in any community. And so I wanted to share this panel with you because of the really brilliant explanation that Natalie Collins gives of spiritual abuse. And she uses this framework of understanding how people can torture others, prisoners of war, to explain the different dynamics of spiritual abuse. And when I heard her explain this on the panel, I just immediately started to think about individuals who exhibited certain behaviours. I'm not going to say anything more because I don't want to spoil it, but I hope that it will be helpful um, in just helping to name and recognise some of the things that you might have experienced in your church context. We have a wider conversation about reporting abuse and safeguarding, and we talk a little bit about the role that theology can play in why we don't know how to deal with disclosures of abuse and mistreatment in Christian spaces. I think it was a really interesting conversation. I've cut down lots of it because it wasn't all relevant. And I think some of it might be really triggering um, for some people, but the full webinar is on YouTube. So I'll post the link to that as well. If you'd like to see the bits I cut out, but um, generally I think this stuff is the stuff that might resonate most with you as the listeners of Sunday School for Misfits. So I hope that you find it helpful. There is lots more to be said and I don't think any research has been done on spiritual abuse in black churches, but I think there definitely is a whole area of work to be done on what spiritual abuse looks like in black churches because I mean, I ain't going to say anything else, but if you know, you know in it. So we definitely have to do that work. But I hope that you find this interesting. And this is going to be a super triggering episode for anybody who's experienced real harm in the church. Um, or it might be triggering if you're a church leader, because this might make you feel as if 
maybe you actually might have exhibited some of these behaviors even without realizing there were a problem. And so even if that's uncomfortable for you, I really hope that you will listen because either you're going to bury your head in the sand, in which case you are going to continue to harm people because you'd rather just continue in habits that you've been told are acceptable, even when you now know better, or some of what you do is going to come back to bite you in the future. And you, you probably need to be prepared. You probably need to be prepared to be changing your actions now through some information that might help you do better as a leader in your context. It's worth saying that your average pastor has no idea what spiritual abuse is. They may well have themselves been raised in a spiritually abusive context and not even realised. They've probably been manipulated their whole life in church and not known that's what it was because they've been told it was discipleship or accountability. So this is why some of the work on spiritual abuse is really hated by some people because it calls into question everything about church life, church culture, the things that we're told have to be this way. And it really opens up the harm that's been done to people. And so for some, that's not a good thing. They'd rather we just kept doing what we've been doing and if people can't hack it then let them leave but actually if we're talking if we if people care at all about people and they care about being an actual pastor someone who cares for others then it's incumbent upon you to be take responsibility for your development as a leader for learning about these dynamics of harm for doing better yourself and for calling it out when you see harm being done by others so i offer this to you as a as a learning tool And I'm interested in your thoughts and your perceptions of this as well. So as usual, send me any notes or emails if you want to. And I hope you have a really great week. I hope this episode serves you well. And uh, my hope is that it will equip us to find, to avoid toxic spaces and to find positive ones that help us rather than preventing us from experiencing connections with God and connections with others. So blessings and love to you all and I'll record again for you soon. So I was going to get each contributor to introduce themselves. Uh, Selena, do you want to go first? Thank you, Natalie. Um, thank you for having me today. And thank you, everyone who's come. My name is Selena. Um, I work at Durham University now, um, looking at a theological education for a range of colleges in the country that train ministers, but also lots of people who want to do degrees in theology. Um, I taught theology for five years at a theological college. And the area of my research and work is all about theology and particularly the questions of power um, and how they shape the life of the church and wider society. So I'm really, it's a privilege to be here today and to share some thoughts with you all. Thank you. Mike, do you want to introduce yourself? Yeah, evening, everybody. I've had uh, over 15 years of youth ministry experience. 11 of those I spent working for a church as the youth minister. I currently um, am a director of an organisation called Concrete, which is focused on enabling Christians who work with young people, both in and outside of the church, to thrive and live fully into their vocation, uh, working with young people. And I keep my head in the game by doing some school chaplaincy as well. Hi, I'm Vicky. My role tonight is really just to facilitate the questions. Um, I am a writer and speaker and other things, but I'll only be contributing um, questions for the panel to answer. It's just worth reiterating at the start, I think, that we're not here in this space to speculate on specific situations. This is to talk more generally 
I'm Natalie. I have worked on issues around primarily men's violence towards women for about 15 years. Most of my work is actually done outside of a Christian context, but I've done lots of work with Christians to equip Christians to respond to abuse, generally sexual and domestic violence, um, but also more broadly than that. And I uh, blog and tweet as God Loves Women. So the first question, um, which I think, Natalie, you're going to answer just to set things off, is what exactly is spiritual abuse? I wanted to start by saying that, that abuse generally is about power differentials and about power misuse. It's about having control of and power over someone. Um, and that might be a situation where at the beginning of the situation, there isn't a power differential. So often within a um, partner relationship, um, both partners um, might enter that relationship with the same amount of power. And then one, if there's an abusive partner, they might um, operate in a way to create a power differential by isolating their partner from friends and family, by um, controlling what they're allowed to do, by undermining their value and by reducing their self-efficacy and ability to have control over their lives and then suddenly they go from being equal partners to their relationship looking much more like that and so it may be it's not that in every situation where there's an abuser it starts off with a a massive power differential it may be that it starts like that and becomes like that but there are contexts where there is a power differential from the beginning so if an adult abuses a child you've got an immediate power differential it might be about the vulnerability of somebody so if somebody is elderly if they're disabled if they're neurodiverse if they are um, in poverty if they are um, trans and um, depending on their sexuality there are all sorts of kind of uh, vulnerabilities which shouldn't wouldn't be an issue but if you bring somebody with um, power or positionality that means they can kind of come in and there is a power differential. And the other way that there might be a power differential is if the person who's abusive has higher wealth, status or influence than the person that they go on to abuse. And in the context of spiritual abuse, we're generally thinking about a leader of some sort, somebody who holds influence within a context. And that's not to say they'd have to be necessarily the church leader. Sometimes church leaders are subject to spiritual abuse from maybe the church warden. And it's more about the this specific context and how power operates in that context so it may be and often is the church leader who might be perpetrating that abuse but it also could be that the power differentials operate in a slightly different way so I don't think we can always assume that oh it's a church the church leader is always the perpetrator it could be a different power differential that's different it's the thing about spiritual abuse is it doesn't kind of exist as a as a type of abuse independently of other forms of abuse so somebody who is um, spiritually abusing somebody it is adding a spiritual or faith-based flavor to the emotional abuse or the physical abuse or the other forms of abuse so it doesn't somebody isn't spiritually abusive solely they're emotionally abusive and that's spiritualized they're uh, physically abusive and that's spiritualized or sexually abusive and so i'm going to share a slide that articulates what abusive behavior looks like i'm using a model from a guy called albert biderman who in the 1950s articulated the ways that prisoners of war were tortured and he articulated eight different ways that somebody could be tortured um, a prisoner of war could be tortured and it's a really powerful model for looking at how abusive behavior operates in any context not just around prisoners of war so when we're looking at somebody being abusive 
essentially what you've got is these these different types of perpetration so you've got the brainwasher who is keeping us focused on the perpetrator all the time they don't give us time or space to think they keep us confused this is often described as gaslighting you've got the isolator who stops us seeing family and friends they prevent us having any perspective than theirs they manipulate or force us to stay at home you've got the humiliator who makes us feel dirty and ashamed they may abuse us sexually they make us shrivel up inside they might mock us in public or tell us that we can't take a joke when we're hurt by their behavior the exhauster keeps us up late they make us do all the work they wake us up in the night they go on and on and on and on and on the almighty uses acts of extreme power so violence or aggression to convince us that they have all the power the threatener makes us feel scared for our or other people's safety. They make us feel we can't trust anybody. They make us feel trapped. The demander forces or manipulates us into doing trivial or pointless tasks. They make us feel confused and insecure. And the nice one, who's potentially the most dangerous of all because they make us think that all this awfulness might be worth it. They confuse us by being nice. They make us feel like things are getting better. They make us feel like all the awfulness is worth it. And I'm just going to click round these to explain what that looks like within a spiritual abuse context. So within the exhaustive context, if we're looking at somebody being abused by a church leader or by somebody within a faith based context, it might be that the exhauster is expecting us to work long hours. They make us constantly second guess ourselves. So we're exhausted with this constant trying to work out. Am I doing the right thing? Am I doing the wrong thing? Am I pleasing God enough? Am I failing God? Am I, is my theology right? Am I right? You have the, the way the humiliator might work in the in a spiritual abuse context is around using purity culture it might be requiring us to share sexual thoughts or experience it might be about explicit sexual abuse by saying you have to serve me or creating some sort of theological justification or ritual that says you have to be sexual with me because that's what god wants that's what god thinks is right it might be about shaming us on the platform and that being articulated as oh it's just banter it's not something serious it might be about kind of forcing heteronormative ideas so things like saying you you know, men and women have to perform particular roles. It might be about presuming and shaming people who are gay. And it might be about mocking somebody who fails at um, masculinity or femininity, saying, oh, this, is that a thumbprint on your head um, when somebody wants to kind of, when a, when a man wants to uh, support his wife with something. It might be preaching or meeting points. So uh, preaching on the platform or in a meeting, um, making points that are coded digs at us, that we know this is about mocking us, humiliating us, but nobody else knows. It may be that there's particular ways that they look at us or particular interactions they have and we know that's a coded thing but everyone else is unaware of that the isolator it might be about pitting others in the team church against each other so getting people to compete with one another for the, the abusers or the leaders attention it might be using others as informants so we don't feel like we have any ability to trust anybody it might be insisting that all our energy goes to the church so we don't have time or energy for our friends or family or anything outside of that social con um, the church context or the faith context it might be about not having time off or money for socializing or manipulating manipulating our family and friends so that everybody thinks this person is amazing they're an amazing man of god isn't it amazing that they're giving us the opportunity to have this leadership opportunity this opportunity to serve god and, and actually then we can't disclose what this person's doing because everybody loves them 
the brainwasher. They might be telling us that we're wrong about God, that only they know what God thinks. It might be about them having no openness to being challenged or being questioned. It might be about going really hot and cold on us. So we're constantly feeling like terrified that we're doing the wrong thing. It might be about using the Bible to control us, to say this is what the Bible says. And actually it's about controlling us. It might be about making us feel like it's all our fault. Very often the brainwasher is about minimizing their own behavior, denying they've done anything wrong and blaming it. They generally will blame the person they're abusing, but they might also blame their mental health issues, their bad childhood, uh, their being on the autistic spectrum, their, you know, their wife, their whoever, that it's somebody else's fault, it's never theirs. The demander um, may have tests that they have to prove our loyalty or faithfulness. Do we get a babysitter quickly enough to go to the meeting that's just been organized tonight? Are we jumping through the hoops that they, they put in place? Um, conversion quotas or other things that are about demanding we kind of abide by certain rules or we do things that are completely unrealistic or unachievable. It might be requiring an appropriate access to our marriage, to our family relationships and certain themselves in there and demanding that they're allowed to be part of everything. It might be about demanding we forgive them or that we submit to them with the almighty i mean this one is massive for somebody who's using spiritual abuse because essentially they take the place of god and they use their status as closer to god and so that is literally the almighty so they they tell us they're closer to god they tell us that god tells them stuff about us so that we are terrified they know everything about us they can make or break our career or our ministry or our calling they use their status and influence to keep us in a position of, of submission to them there may be issues if they pay our salary or if we live in church accommodation because essentially they control whether we have somewhere to live and whether we can afford to you know provide food for ourselves or anybody else that we're responsible for they may push physical boundaries touching massage wrestling something like that um, and often they are untouchable even if we report them so they hold that really strong power the threatener the kind of silent treatment going silent and that's really can be very difficult because we don't know what's going to happen or when they're going to kind of stop being silent it may be that we're always having to walk on eggshells what is the mood going to be today how are they going to feel today am i going to be doing the right thing today they may be saying if you leave me or the church you will fail god will hate you the church will fail god's mission will fail if you report me then all these people will lose their faith and it will be your fault or you'll lose everything if you leave me you mustn't leave this church because the only reason you're successful is because of me because of this ministry and then the nice one, so giving us compliments, maybe giving us opportunities to lead, saying nice things about us from the platform, use of powerful prophetic words to tell us how cold we are and how brilliant we are. Um, love bombing is about um, overwhelming us with in the early stages of a situation with lots of compliments and positivity and all of this stuff and then actually that drying up or suddenly switching into something else they might kind of get us to share very vulnerable information about us that then they start to use against us at a later date um, meaningless apologies and also this sense that the nice one will give us access to being part of the in crowd and one of the things that's really challenging about the being part of the in crowd is it might be that being part of the in crowd part of the the way that you know you're part of the in crowd is if this person who's abusive is treating you in these ways so actually if he's giving you the silent treatment then that means you're in the club and so you then feel like actually in order to gain the status of being in the club i have to be willing to be subject to this stuff and so then that that becomes even more challenging so that's a kind of just a brief overview of spiritual abuse selena or mike did you want to add anything to that I think the only thing I would add 
is particularly, I think, the use of theology in the scriptures to coerce people into particular behaviours or to to do all the things that you've just outlined, Natalie. So the threatening comes through the use of the scriptures. You know, if you don't do this, then this is what God will do to you and those kinds of things, I think. But it is, as you say, that it's a spiritual flavour to all those kinds of abuse that you've already outlined. So this is questions that have come from um, participants, people who are watching, is should I report abuse? And I think to expand on that first, is, is it still worth reporting abuse in any kind of church or Christian context, an organisation or some other um, setup, even if you have no evidence other than your own word? And where to go to report as well if you have a safeguarding issue? How can you be assured that somewhere is safe or find peer support? In terms of should I report abuse? Um, Selena, is there anything you'd like to, to answer? I mean, I leave the dear side of this to people who know best what should be said. Um, but I think the answer is yes. And find the, the right avenues where that can be done in a way that you feel safe and able to do so. And I think also do it in the, in the timing and the way that feels right for you. Yeah, I would um, agree. I think it's about the first thing I'd say is what do you want to achieve by reporting? Are you in a place where you feel able to cope with if it, if your what you want to happen doesn't happen? So they actually, if I report this and nobody listens and it all goes wrong, am I am I going to be okay? So making sure that you are supported and that you know that you've gone through all the what ifs and you're sure that that's definitely something you want to do you do not owe anybody to report you don't have to report what's being done to you you have to feel like you are in control and have the power to do that out of your own kind of sense that this is what i want to do you shouldn't feel under pressure or like you have to do it and what you can do is you can make a hypothetical call so if it's to a church organization or to the police or to a local service or whatever it is you can contact them and ring them up and say hypothetically if somebody i don't give your name ring on a like you know withheld number and say if hypothetically i was to report this what would be the action that would be taken how would this be proceeding like what support would be in place for if hypothetically somebody was to report this and then you can get a sense and a confidence if that's something that you're ready to do if the support is going to be something you need and then make a decision whether to do it so you're doing it out of a sense of power and knowledge about whether it's right for you um, rather than kind of going in not knowing so you don't uh, you, you can always contact anyone and say hypothetically what would happen if this was reported and then you can know that before you actually do a report if somebody discloses abuse to you you have a responsibility and a duty to report that and to take that further so it's one thing that somebody who's been abused doesn't isn't under pressure to have to do something that doesn't work for them but, but i just wanted to be really clear if somebody discloses something to you you have a responsibility to act on it and that involves kind of knowing and having literacy about the safeguarding processes that are operate in your space Mike, is there anything you want to say in response to that? I guess just within a church context, which is my background, though, there's different avenues you can go, especially if, it, if it's happened in that church context. There's lots of different avenues that you can explore that aren't necessarily going through people who you might not trust anymore in that church context. And there should be signposts to things like that and finding the right person to, you know, I'd echo what the others would say, you know, finding that right person to disclose to is really important. Moving on to if I reported abuse. How do I ensure that I'm supported if I do that? Or what about, you know, tailored responses for people with disabilities, neurodivergent victims? How do we know that there will be support if we speak up? 
I guess I'd start by saying make sure that you report when you're in a safe place. Just because there's a big investigation going on doesn't mean you have to report immediately. You know, you don't feel under pressure to do it until you're ready. And think about what support you would need in place. So if you if somebody is neurodiverse, it may be about thinking, what would I need in place to ensure that I could do that? It might be about talking to other people who are neurodiverse too, or do a lot of support for neurodiverse people to say, what do you think I need in place before I report? And and then when I report, what what kind of things do I need to be saying that I need from this process? And then asking, you know, that hypothetical question, if I was to report this, what support is available? If they're saying that the investigators are saying, well, you can get counselling, they're asking, well, how many sessions? Like, who do I get to choose the counsellor or do you choose them? You know, like asking those questions hypothetically before you commit to anything. So what should I do if re- abuse is reported in my church or in my organisation? That can obviously be something that can come as a huge shock to people as well. They may they may not have had any idea that there was potentially an issue or you may be already very aware and have uh, not known what to do before now. So how do you think we can best support people who have been victims, particularly if the media becomes involved as well? How do we support those who are hurt um, while things are going on? There's always a lot of back and forth, particularly on social media as well. How do we make sure that if abuse is reported, that people are looked after? And what should I do if I suddenly hear that abuse is reported in a place that I am active? I think the first thing is that we need to believe the person. You know, that if somebody reports to me or I hear a report, the first thing I need to do is start by from a position of I am going to believe this person that, you know, it doesn't mean that there isn't investigations needed and that kind of thing. But the person who's reporting really needs to know and be confident that they are being believed because that's one of the things they'll have been told. No one will believe you. And so we need to believe somebody and we need to um, recognize that it's taken a lot of courage for them to get to that point. So I think there's something about believing and about making sure that we're well supported as well have we got support around us have we um got emotional support you know we might need to get invest in some clinical supervision so we've got somewhere we can process some of this stuff and i think that that recognition that we need to pass it on um, and we need to realize that we might be held accountable to this as we've seen in the news recently that when people didn't act when they should have done one day that might be in a report do you want to be in that report you do not want to be doing the wrong thing in that report not that's the main reason but obviously we want people to be doing the right thing because it's right but equally do we want we need to be ensure that we're making the right decisions I would also add that I think it's important and something that each of us can do is to really stand in solidarity with somebody when they come forward with a story I think it's one thing to believe when someone comes and says this is what I've experienced but I think it's also about using our voices where we can to speak up in the places where we can actually have a positive impact on the situation because I think that one of the worst things is feeling like you're alone in the situation and that you, you're not believed or that nobody's going to help you to go through the process that you need to go through. So I think offering that practical support, if that's going with somebody to a meeting, if they need that, if that's helping sitting with someone as they write down what's happened or whatever it might be, and just being in the same space, if that's what they need from you to be with them. And if you're in a person, if you're a person in with a position in, in an organization, have the courage to speak up. I think one of the things that I think is be re-traumatizing is sometimes the lack of moral courage for people who actually have the authority to speak up and elevate those voices and say, we need to really be talking about this and not just brushing it under the carpet. And I think take 
using whatever power we have in whatever space we have to, to make sure we're listening and acting in solidarity with people who are reporting abuse is essential. And it's something that we can all do, even if we're not the senior pastor of a church. Another kind of sub question under this topic is how to liaise appropriately with church members or um, parts of an organisation during a live investigation into an alleged incident. What do you think is good advice about how to walk that line between, you know, a fair investigation, a fair trial and actually supporting people who might have come forward? I think we need to think if somebody has been deeply hurt here, how are they going to experience this statement, this conversation, this, whether they're in the room or not, whether this is a private conversation, whether this is a public conversation, how is, how are people who've been hurt directly in this situation, potentially, but also other people who might have been abused in another context who are sitting here and witnessing this, how are they going to feel? And that they need to be the primary audience that we direct our communications. Um, We need to kind of almost have a lens that goes, how are people who have been hurt going to feel if they read this? How are people who've been abused and been met with disbelief or met met with unkindness or met with institutional cover up? How are they going to feel? And so that has to be our kind of compass point that guides us through the communications that we offer. So I don't think it's it's possible to say, say this, don't say this, you know, like a a five step plan, because it's always going to be contextual. But it's about thinking are they are the people who've been hurt either in this context or another one centered in what we're saying or are we centering protectionism optics you know other stuff our reputation and you know that would be kind of theologically i'm sure selena can say something on this but you know theologically that would be as christians that's our has got to be a priority hasn't it so yeah selena did you want to say anything about the theology of how to respond i mean don't start me off vicky um, <laughs> with the theology I do think that we have to take very seriously the the need to ensure that we stand on on, on the side of those who have been really hurt and that we're not found to be silent when we have the opportunity to speak and to make sure voices are heard. I mean, I, I don't think I need to run through the amount of scripture references in which Jesus has quite strong words for the harm that's done to his little ones. And that's not just about children, it's about all of those who are God's little children. And the quite strong words that Jesus has about, you know, it's better that a millstone would tie it around your neck and your soul into the sea than you do harm to one of God's little children. And I think that we can sometimes overlook that and not take it seriously. And I understand the tensions here because I know in, a, in the chat, a couple of people are saying, you know, we when we don't know exactly what's happened, what do we do? But I think we have to always bear in mind that if this person has really experienced what they've experienced, then we want to make sure that we're doing right by them and we're not adding to the harm that's already been done by questioning them and doubting them. Um, And so I think that has to be really important that we bear that in mind and and not allow sometimes a kind of theology of grace that says, okay, well, we'll err on the side of showing grace to the person who's been accused And that can mean that we end up doing more harm to the person who's reporting abuse because our idea of how we express grace is a little misjudged. So I think there's a huge difference between showing grace to the kind of everyday harm that we might do with a harsh word here or there to the people around us 
versus somebody who has a, a pattern or potentially has a pattern of predatory behavior and abusive behavior. Those are two very, very different things. And so the way that we express grace has to look very different so that we're not actually enabling more harm into, into a community and to vulnerable people. So I think we have to exercise some discernment in how we apply these Christian ideas around grace and forgiveness so that we're not actually reinforcing and enabling more harm inadvertently. One of the things that I would add also is often when somebody discloses to us a situation of abuse, even if we've been on our safeguarding training and even if we like on a theoretical level think abuse is really wrong, when a disclosure comes, if we know the person who is being disclosed about, so if we know the person who is being alleged as a perpetrator, what can often happen is that we know that person and we know they're a really nice person and we've had really good experience of them. Potentially God might have used them to speak to us and, and we think that we're actually quite a good judge of character and we think that I'm not sure that that could be quite right. And it's not that we don't know this person who's disclosing because we know them and we know they've got a good character. But what they're asking us to do is to implode our whole worldview. <laughs> We're at, they're asking us to acknowledge that our ability to discern who is safe and who is not safe might not be quite what we think it is. And that's terrifying. So do I... Do I fully accept that this person that I thought was safe, that I thought was, uh, you know, a kind of called by God and, and was, a, you know, kind of like was in the good category? Do I accept that I was wrong, that my judgments might not be as good as I thought they were, that I might not be quite as discerning as I thought I was, particularly if I'm a church leader and my, my kind of whole job is about being discerning? Or do I reframe the situation to think that maybe this person's misunderstood, maybe they're exaggerating, maybe it's just they think it's this, but subject that's their subjective view. It's not really about that because victim blaming attitudes and not believing people isn't always about disbelief or not wanting to believe someone. It's about the threat to our whole worldview and how we understand the world to be ordered. And so when somebody discloses something, part of the reason we don't want to believe them or we might minimize it or we might kind of shift it into, oh, I'm sure they didn't mean that. I'm sure it's not quite what you're saying it is is because we don't want to do that work of going, ah, oh, no, maybe I'm not what I thought I was. And that's terrifying. And so we have a choice. Am I going to choose to engage in a world where maybe I can't tell who's safe and who's not, where maybe discernment isn't only the only thing that's in place? And so I think understanding what's happening when we start to minimize, when we start to diminish, when we start to change the narrative to fit what we want to be true is is much more about our worldview being shattered and us not being ready to do that and so i think we've got to we've got to own the fact that that's part of it and so what we do is we 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 kind of sacrifice that person who's who's disclosing on the altar of our our comfortableness on us keeping things how we want them to be and that's that's what's a lot of what's going on and needs to be reckoned with selena go on I think that is so true and as you were speaking I was thinking it's even bigger than just it's asking people to reassess their whole worldview about themselves it's also about God because if you have to admit that this has happened in the church then what does it what does that mean for your whole idea of who God is and what the church is and I think this is particularly a challenge in the evangelical world in, in the Pentecostal world because so much of that space is about inviting people into the community that we tell people is a great place where they're going to meet God and they're going to have their life transformed. And we only ever mean that positively. 
And so we don't want actually often stories that contradict that narrative. It's easier for us to silence those stories, to quiet those voices that are screaming and saying, this isn't actually what's happening. There's other things happening here. And it's easier for us to silence those voices than to actually have to go back and say, well, what does all of this mean for what we believe about God and the church and what it is that we're even doing as people in this space? Mike, what can we do to support young people, particularly being vigilant and protecting young people in faith environments or people who may have already been affected by a negative experience within a faith environment? What can we do to offer support and protection? As, as I was listening to that, I think it's, it was really important that, to add that we, do, we need to listen to the voices of young people. I think it you know, we've talked about diminishing voices. It's really easy for us to diminish the voice of the young person to filter what they say through an adult lens and to try and, I guess, in many ways, justify what their experience has been. So I think, you know, first and foremost, it's really important that we listen to the voices of young people, that we advocate really hard for them um, and acknowledge what they have been through and experienced. I think we should continue to reach out to young people, even when they've left faith communities or aren't involved in church anymore how do we stay in in touch and contact with them so we can continue to pass to them even if they might not be in our sphere of influence as much anymore if situations occur that mean people may start to doubt whether some of their spiritual experiences were real in a certain environment you know even the main leader or somebody else has been incredibly accused what do we do to start addressing the harm that has been done to young people and and to people uh, you know of any age who start to wonder was any of it real is everything ruined how do we trust our experiences of god Selena, you were sort of alluding to this as well if our faith was almost in the leader as as well as god as well how do we navigate those feelings how do we start to get back to what's foundational this is such a difficult process and it's not something that can be rushed and this is something that I think many of us would have had to go through at a certain point is unpicking what was a genuine experience from the distortions and, and really unhelpful uses of power that might have happened in a particular space and the flippant response is you know well it's it wasn't god it was them and you have to separate out the two but it's not as easily done as we say because often, although we say that, you know, God is God and these are just people, in these in church contexts, sometimes they can feel very closely bound together. And so actually it can be almost impossible to separate out the word from a pastor from the word of God when you're sat staring at this man on the stage every week and you're being told he's getting words from heaven. Like it's very difficult to be able to separate that out in the in the aftermath. Of this kind of, of situation, I think that for me, what's helped me has just been, I've had to step back from church at different times and actually do simple things like going for walks and journaling and practicing meditation, reading the gospels and trying to get back to something that is really about who God has shown God's self to be in Jesus, away from all the trappings of institutional church in order to try to get me back to something that feels genuine and real and processing my experiences through that rather than through the structures of a, of a Sunday service with the lights and the sermons and everything else, in order to be able to go back into a church community with a deeper sense of what my actual faith and spirituality is outside of those dynamics that have been really unhealthy and unhelpful. But it, it's such a difficult process and many people, of course, go through that process and never return which is entirely understandable and legitimate, bearing in mind what things, what people have really experienced. And one of the sub-questions under this was how to navigate bewilderment or feelings of even being driven crazy 
at what point is it a good idea to think about external help or someone that you could confide in or processes with outside of your own resources where would you any of you recommend looking for somebody who could help with that I think I I would echo what Selena was saying there about us needing to kind of be rooted in God and not in those experiences like there's um there's a verse in Psalm 1 that's also in Jeremiah 17a and it says about being like a tree planted by the riverside and our roots go so far down into the river that even when there's a drought we still we're still fed and we're still kind of nourished and uh I think I like I it came really significant to me when I was in um there was a couple of situations that happened in quick succession where somebody was really complimentary about me and then somebody was really like horrible about me and I had to do all this kind of all this processing about where my identity was rooted was it you know it can't be rooted in the people who are being really complimentary of me any more than it can be rooted in the people who are being really horrible about me um but I think that also extends to our kind of faith context and our, our churches and the people who do teaching and the people who influence us we can't be rooted our faith can't be rooted in anything other than that kind of that place with God so you know as as Selena said we need to be journaling we need to be having like time away on our own is our only time when we meet with God in the corporate gathering or do we have time and space daily or weekly or monthly where we are committing to like authentically engage with God in a way that's about the, the two of us rather than something that's kind of like you know so I think I, I definitely think that's super super important and I think finding resources that are helpful for us there isn't kind of like one size fits all some people are going to really benefit from maybe getting a spiritual directors which lots of Anglican churches diocese have but equally you might be like I do not want to go anywhere near anyone Anglican and so I think really it depends on whether um, our own context means that we feel safe with that person it might be about having a, a counsellor I don't think there's any requirement that the person who supports us has to necessarily share our faith or or they have to have a willingness to understand that context but I think sometimes having somebody who isn't have a faith is sometimes like helpful because they can be like that's not all right and they can see into the culture in a way that we might not be able to so I think there's some uh, helplines for kind of mental health support and we might be like oh that the Samaritans feels a bit dramatic but actually the Samaritans are there to listen even if you're not like suicidal even if you're not like at the end like the to totally end they're there to try to stop you getting to the end of something and so actually it's not it's not dramatic to say I just need someone to talk to non-judgmentally and I haven't got any money to pay a therapist you know there's lots of helplines and stuff that can help I wonder too if there's a sense that we're waiting for some expert to tell us how we should be feeling you know given the time frames the experts are feeling the same stuff you're feeling too. Everybody's trying to process all of this. And another broad question was about how to support people who are struggling, who may not have access to networks, who may not have those resources, particularly in congregations or wider organisations. And how can the church um, accommodate the messiness that might come with that, particularly if it's a church that values their brand or their image more than authenticity, which can be the case. So how do we create those spaces to support people who are struggling if they're not able to help themselves? I think, yeah, if you're in a setting where caring for people who are experiencing trauma because of these kinds of events is not the priority, then I would say having those conversations one-to-one -one and, and processing together in ways that happen outside of the formal structures of the church. But there is so much literature out there already that helps us to navigate some of these things. Brilliant. Thank you. 
So another question of the broad topic is how do we talk about these situations when often the view is we shouldn't be talking about them at all and being open and honest about feelings, about things that might be relevant to the situation without stepping into gossip. So talking about a situation isn't the same as speculating on it, responding effectively to the innocent until proven otherwise statements how can we actually talk about these ways that in a way that is actually helpful, constructive, healing, even what should we do that allows for those conversations to surface? I think um, one of the things about when an investigation is running is that we want that to be an investigation that has integrity and ensures that as much information as possible is given to that investigation to ensure that the most possibility of us knowing what's taken place or the investigators knowing and, and being able to move forward and help anybody who has been hurt. And it's one of the reasons those who kind of are concerned about like um, false allegations and stuff are often the ones who are advocating for anonymity for rape suspects. Um, and actually, the reason why that never um, is not helpful for justice is that often it, it's when and when a kind of when these kind of cases are announced that somebody's been charged, that means that other people may come forward. And so there is this within a kind of justice context, innocent until proven guilty is not the only con the only rule that needs to apply. We need justice is about those who've been hurt being given justice, and that so we we have to re realize it's not just about innocent until proven guilty um, it's also about making sure that justice can happen and if we are sacrificing the possibility of justice by shutting down conversations by making statements which essentially silence and reduce the possibility of people coming forward we're actually countering the possibility of justice taking place and so i think we need to be thinking about our priority is getting to the truth and enabling justice to take place and obviously justice needs to take place if, if there are false allegations but the reality is what we know is most of the time it takes a lot a lot of courage for people to come forward and so in terms of what we know about abuse and we know about how long it takes to take to report stuff and particularly when there's institutions involved and there's you know then actually um, by the time it gets to the point of of somebody being stepped back or where a statement needs to be made there's already quite a lot of credible information that indicates that that needs to take place we, we don't start with like somebody stepping back when not there's no information out there so i think understanding there's a pre-process before it becomes public anyway that gives us some indication and now we're trying to gather that information okay the next questions that we um are tackling really are looking at the wider cultural questions that have come up and as you can imagine there have been quite a lot around these the wider um, uh, theology and the church cultures and how do we change the culture that obviously many of us will have been used to so that more people feel able to call out this behavior more so that we're not accidentally enabling it ourselves or um, uh, staying how do we stay accountable to leaders and keep leaders accountable as well and the off-topic issues as well, things that we're not really supposed to address directly about sex and about things that may seem taboo. How can we, as individuals who perhaps don't have any particular power within a, an organisation, change the culture so that um, situations like this can be spoken about more openly? Selena, would you like to? Yeah, I mean, I'm going to sound a little bit cynical, <laughs> I'm afraid. I, I, I'm at the point now where I, I go to places where that culture exists because I don't know if it's possible without a, without a kind of physical mass of people to shift a culture when there's a conflict of 
We want to defend the image that we have a really perfect community here. I don't think that gives any room to having these kinds of conversations. And no matter how much you might articulate why it's necessary or talk about how healthy it is, institutions make choices all the time about what they're going to prioritise. And so I, at this point in life, go to places where that culture exists. I go to places where I know there are individuals or multiple people who are quite happy to tell the truth. Um, who have some courage, who think truth is more important than illusions of perfection, who are willing to be admit about the grayness of life and wrestle with the challenges of our existence and, and don't think everything is amazing. And, I, and for me, that, that's really important because life is messy and complicated. And I need that honesty and truth in my spiritual life. I need that in any community that I'm part of. So I think my, my answer is, sorry, unfortunately, I don't, have a, I don't have a way that you can change the culture because the culture doesn't always want to change. And there's other interests often that are shaping that requirement that the culture stays as it is. Sadly, I'm sorry. Well, perhaps it's more important to recognise that, as you've said, you know, what to look out for that tells you you're in a place where it's a safer culture, a healthier culture than perhaps some of the others. So I think that's equally important. As a part of our response is we all have to be vigilant to our own potential to misuse power and um, not necessarily that it's not that there but for the grace of God go I because we could all be perpetrators if we just didn't you know like it's not like that but we all have the potential to do things that are not helpful to other people so we have to be vigilant in ourselves and we have to be vigilant in our context and if the more power we've got like I think probably the one of the biggest dangers that sends us on a on a pathway to being misusing power is being complimented. I think that sense that actually, are we keen for our to be given compliments? Are we keen to be in context where where people tell us how great we are, or do we want to be in context where we're being constantly held accountable and challenged? And do we surround ourselves with sycophants who just tell us how brilliant we are, or do we choose to continually place ourselves, like Selena says, in context where people are wanting to tell us the truth? And that sometimes that truth is not going to be what we're not going to want to hear. It. It's all it's all very well when we're speaking truth to power, but what about when the truth is to us? Because we need to be hearing that stuff. So I think. I think that's some of it that, um, that I would want to add. I think there's one that it would be good to just try and answer if we ha have the time. Is how do we ensure that the most vulnerable, let's say people who are disabled, neurodivergent, young people, other minority groups of any sort, have a voice and space in this process? I think part of the problem is that the most vulnerable people are the ones who just don't have space to talk. And I, I do think social media shifts some of that, actually. There is that sense that social media shifts power dynamics. It means that people can be followed because we, we're interested in what that person says. And then it means that that then draws attention to, oh, people are listening to that person who normally wouldn't be afforded status or power or opportunity to be heard. So I think it's some of it's about the platforms that we can utilise or are we are we creating spaces but also recognizing and addressing the barriers to why people don't aren't being heard so are we are we wanting people who've got all the answers are we wanting nice packaged up solutions because actually people who've been really harmed or really hurt or who've been really marginalized often like it's really hard because we we maybe not have the skills or we've not been able to get to the point where we can really fully communicate in the way we want to but equally we're not being listened to and we're not you know so there's this kind of on both sides it can be really difficult because we're not maybe going to package it up in this kind of nice neat way with a, a branded powerpoint Do you know <laughs> so i think some of it is about 
do we want people who've got answers who are just going to kind of come in and tell us what to do? Because actually people who've been marginalized and kind of ignored um very often that's not like we're, we're really not in a position to do that and also it can be quite traumatic you know some of the things that we see especially i saw with like we saw with the me too movement with lots of women particularly feeling like they had to share the worst things that had been done to them to some because they felt it was going to somehow change something and it feels really wrong that we expect people to rip open their chests and show their scars to everybody in order for change to come and that feels wrong too yeah, I'm just going to quickly say that I, I heard someone say something once about canaries in the mind, that certain groups are canaries in the mind, um, as in they give a signal that something's wrong before everyone else figures it out. And it tends to be minority groups who figure out before the majority that something's wrong here. And I was thinking, actually, when we think about some of the big spaces where some of the stories have broken, um, it, it makes me think, actually, who was already wasn't in the room? I doubt whether New World Divergent people were included and welcomed in those communities at all. They were just not probably around at all. Ethnic minority groups tend to not be around. LGBTQ plus people tend to be either there and having to perform heteronormativity to belong or not there at all. So there's always, there's always, always groups of people who are signalling to us either by their absence or by their marginalisation that something's wrong. And so I think it's important that we're monitoring that and paying attention to that that goes again to the, the spaces we choose to inhabit. Actually, it's not if you have a church that's not actually representative of a wide, a wide range of people, then that's not going to be the kind of place where truth can be told because only certain kinds of truths and stories are being centered in that space. So I think it's paying attention to all of those dynamics as well as a preventative thing, because you can't conjure up inclusion at in the in the moment of crisis. There has to be something cultivated way before this kind of event happens. I was going to say, we need, you know, we need to make sure that we see the young peoples in those spaces too, because often they're the people who who are left out and they're not seen. And we think, you know, young people can't deal with the, the complexity of this issue. Yet young people have this great ability to hold complexity and deal with the fact that there's no easy answers. And so they're often excluded because we think they can't handle it. Whereas actually we need to trust the young people are able to, to sit in this this difficult space and and hold that complexity and and have a valued voice that needs to be heard as we navigate a path forward. Our final question group, which I'm going to say we don't have time for, I'm handing back to Natalie at the end of this, was how do we change things? And I think from all the answers that you've given this evening, there are already so many ways that we can change things. There's clearly a lot of desire and commitment and passion that people want to see things differently. They don't want things to be the same in the past. So how do we change things, I think, is the question that we're going to hand back effectively as I hand back over to Natalie. So thank you all for your responses and contributions. 